0: Surgeon Podcast. Today, we are discussing the paper, Ultra-Early Surgery Correlates with Higher Rates of American Spinal Injury Association Impairment Scale Conversion After Cervical Spinal Cord Injury. We have Dr. Burke and Dr. Dahl as the first and senior author of the paper with us, and as guest faculty is Dr. West and Dr. Patel, who will be discussing the paper and asking questions. I would like to uh, for Dr. Burke to start with a summary of the paper.
1: Great, uh, thank you so much. Just on behalf of Dr. Dahl and all the authors, I just wanna say thank you very much for giving us a chance to present the paper. Um, the paper in itself is pretty simple, actually. Um, it's, uh, as by way of background, we're looking at um, traumatic spinal cord injury, and specifically focusing on cervical spinal cord injury. And the question we had is, you know, we're at San Francisco General Hospital, and uh, we see a lot of these injuries, and um, how? what's the right time frame of when do we take these people to the operating room in order to maximize outcome? Um, you can uh, try to implement policies, obviously, where you have a very fast flow to the operating room, uh, but that takes a lot of resources. So the question is, is, is the push to do that is that warranted there's been a lot of work on this um going back decades Um, really the the literature itself was marked by some studies that support a push to try to um, operate on spinal cord injury um, immediately or very soon and other studies that showed that there was no difference if you operated very soon versus if you waited a couple of days basically um so i think the major uh um, for our paper uh, was essentially really defining what it means to operate on someone soon. So we wanted to ask the question, typically uh, it's been a early surgery has been less than 24 hours. We wanted to see if there was specifically any difference between um, surgery less than 12 hours versus surgery between 12 and 24 because we felt 24 was a kind of a long time to sit on, um, on someone with spinal cord injury. And then we also included a late comparison greater than 24 hours. Um, just to see how uh, those patients did as well. Um, So we uh, started with cervical spinal cord injury was a retrospective study. Uh, We grouped uh, all the patients. We had 48 patients in the database, collected continuously at our one institution, San Francisco General Hospital, Um, by the time it took them to go for surgery. So retrospective, meaning we looked back at the records. We saw how fast people went to surgery. And people went to surgery less than 12 hours uh, from the time of ED admission, which is an important point. Um, uh, basically, when we're, we're one category uh, people went to surgery from uh, 12 to 24 hours um, after ED admission was another category, and those after uh, 24 hours, uh, 24 to 72 was a third category. Um, we documented their um, uh, age of scores on admission versus discharge, and you know, it, for us, we were going to be surprised if we actually saw any improvement. To tell you the truth, because it's not the time for admission to discharge is not long. Uh, We weren't looking at follow-up six months down the road, and we were really surprised to see that there was a a big difference um, in those scores between people who went to surgery early, um, essentially in that very ultra-early group, less than 12 hours, compared to the early group, which is 12 to 24. In fact, if you just categorize people by 0 to 24, in other words, the traditional early group, um, you didn't actually see an effect. So we thought this was an interesting paper, because we felt maybe it could um, start to uh, basically um, explain why there's this variance in the in the uh, literature. Maybe what's going on is all of the improvement is very early after the initial injury, and the fact that we're having larger time windows of 24 hours is we're just creating too much variance to see uh, to see the effect. Um, so that was a major part of the paper. We also spent. A significant amount of time to try to make sure we weren't missing anything and there was no confounds because it is retrospective. So we didn't want to make sure there was no, uh, the fact that people were going to injury later was because they were sicker or their injuries were worse, which they weren't. Um, we uh, looked at the age of the patients and there was no difference there as well. Um, and uh, so we uh, obviously spent time to make sure there were any confounds. Um, I think the biggest limitations of the paper um, are the fact, obviously, that it's retrospective. So we don't really have a great reason why potentially that uh, people are going earlier versus later because we weren't there making the decision. It wasn't pre-planned. Um, but ultimately, this is the best we can do, and there's nothing to indicate um, that the people were treated any differently in, in the three groups. Um, and I think the most exciting thing about the paper for us. Is that uh the fact that potentially there's this window um, after a spinal cord injury um, uh, you know very early afterwards where you can really operate and intervene um to maximize outcomes, so that's where we're following up on um, now um and we hope that's what inspires others to do the same thing and hi, this is Sanjay
2: dohl. if I can just uh, emphasize a few points that John uh, made very well. The, when we looked back at, at these data on timing, the impact of timing of surgery and spinal cord injury, uh, no one was more skeptical than we were, or I was at least. And I was not expecting to see such a dramatic difference in, in the short-term neurologic outcomes in these patients. And I, I think that adds to the power of the paper and that we weren't attempting to show a difference. We just wanted to see, just look at, internally look at our own experience. And then when we discovered not only was there a big difference in the number of AIS rate improvement that we saw, but also if you look at the degree of AIS conversion, and I think that's an important metric, that's what's been studied in the past. MSCI, the European Spinal Cord Injury Registry, has looked at this and has published some very depressing numbers about the very low likelihood of an ASIA-A patient converting at six months. This was dramatically different in that we saw almost 89% of our patients who were ASIA-A complete, patients whom generally have been treated in a nihilistic fashion, Eighty-nine percent of those patients who were operating on within 12 hours converted to a better grade than what they came in at. The other th- point that I wanted to clarify, and I think John alluded to this earlier, was the timing and the timing from ED presentation. And we in San Francisco are in a very unique environment, and, and this is not the case in a lot of places, in that our mean time from injury to emergency room is 17 minutes, and that is very important, obviously, and it's not easily replicated in other institutions. However, we have that. So truly what this means is essentially, we're looking at time from injury to decompression because the this you only really need to add on a matter of minutes to this 12-hour or 24-hour marker or, or beyond. But ultimately, I, I think the, the take-home point from this paper is this is, this is early pilot data, this is retrospective, so there's certainly biases that are attached to it. However, it's compelling nonetheless, and at the very least, there's no harm done by operating on these patients in an ultra early fashion, and there's no, not a clear good argument against doing it if it is an option for them.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Dahl. Uh, I would like to now ask Dr. Guest. Do uh, see if I have
3: some questions for the authors. Yes, I, I have a just, I guess I nailed it down to three where I thought were important questions, and I'll just ask them in sequence. So um, this is a long time period, 2005 to 2014, so I'm wondering if the 48 patients represent a continuous sequence. Often in retrospective studies, that's one of the sort of quality benchmarks is to try to uh, make sure that it's a continuous sequence. Uh, the second thing is the re- reliability of the early uh, Asia exam. Actually, the early Asia exam has never been validated to be trustworthy at this very short time interval. Uh, people have looked at that and they've come up with either 48 hours or 72 hours. But one of the questions really is this very, very early exam, is it? is it really um, accurate? Can you actually do an exam at that time and and make it accurate? Um, There were 10 surgeons and so you know there may be some component here of the way that people decompress the spinal cord uh, may have contributed to this. Uh, And then I didn't realize initially that this was an early uh, outcome. I really commend Uh, I would say that that, that's very interesting, and I do commend the authors because I think that making surgery uh, an urgent factor together with other uh, things like stabilizing blood pressure is is something we want to aim for. Um, But if you look at the uh, data for the um, patients who were early and late, uh, you have 13 A patients and 16 patients who are not A. And if you look at actual natural history data uh, out to six months, you would have expected much more than a thirty percent thirty percent of the subjects to improve. So those were some of my observations. But I do overall think this is a very helpful study.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Guest. I uh, appreciate it. Um, I think just to address those also uh, in sequence. Um, um, First of all, was it a continuous sequence of uh, patients? Uh, Yes, it was, as defined by, um, you know, retrospective data. It was going back a long, a long time, obviously, and um, predated um, some of our, even our current attendings being there. Um, We only looked at cervical spinal cord injury. Um, And admittedly, our San Francisco probably doesn't have the same level of uh, spinal cord injury as maybe other places where we're in a, a, city with not a lot of highways. We don't get the motor vehicle crashes, but um, it was a a continuous sequence of uh, of patients. Um, I think the reliability of the early age exam is a really important measure. Um, I think it's been shown to be um, questionable sometimes because of the spinal shock and also just the exam in the emergency room. Um, And again, I think for us that convinced us that if anything, those that would add a variability that would almost drown a signal. So, the fact that we still saw a signal or a difference in these groups, uh, there wouldn't be necessarily, not anything necessarily to um, change the reliability of that exam per going to surgery early, at least that we could think of. Um, uh, and then also, um, finally, just the fact there were 10 surgeons. I think that, um, you know, the I'll you know, defer to Dr. Dahl, but the you know, what was done in terms of posterior decompression versus anterior versus circumferential. Um, we didn't document because it was so um, a variable across position, but that is something that I think it's really important to follow up on, and obviously we're um, collecting that uh, now in our, in our latest rendition of this.
2: But, I, you know, and I, I'd like to add, you know, certainly the, you know, this is, again, w- one of our stated limitations in this paper is that it's a It's a retrospective case series we we're, we're we're relying on our retrospective database of patients. It's certainly imperfect, and we freely admit that that you know we we can't guarantee that we got every patient and it does go back a long ways. It goes back to before even I was at San Francisco General, so there are no guarantees in that, and that's that's part of the limitation on the data. Um, the you know the the comment about Asia grades I I think that is important to a certain extent you know and and I I believe you know if you look at the Asia worksheet I, I like you said Dr Guest I think it's forty eight or seventy two hours before you can you can call it and and my philosophical approach to that is I and and I don't want to sit around and wait and find out. You're absolutely right. A lot of the patients that may be in Asia A, when we first see them 20, 30 minutes, an hour after their injury, if I waited two days and, you know, allowed natural history to take its course, it's very possible that some of those or maybe many of them are no longer Asia A. They might be B or C, but am I really benefiting them by waiting around to find out? And I think it also speaks to the overarching philosophy of diagnosing spinal cord injury, and, and we, we struggle with this a lot, and I bet you do in Miami as well, is spinal cord injury and the degree of it is harder to diagnose than than it initially would seem, right? It seems really obvious. Is somebody paralyzed or, is they not, or are they not paralyzed? But in real life, there are so many confounding factors, right? Concomitant injuries, whether they be extremity injuries, brain injury, intoxication, age, All of those things play a role in making it difficult to diagnose the patient with a spinal cord injury, difficult to diagnose the severity of the injury, and we still are using what I would consider to be a very antiquated system of diagnosing and prognosticating spinal cord injury, which is a pure clinical exam, which is subject to so many biases and so many limitations based on the patient and based on on the examiner, We've we've gone back in other studies and looked at other what we like to call broadly biomarkers and radiographic biomarkers, such as imaging, the basic score, something that we published on that looks at the imaging characteristics of the spinal cord injury, electrophysiology. We've also published on the presence or absence of motor evoked potentials in these patients. And I really believe that that is the direction that spinal cord injury diagnosis and quantification is going in it's going to be a multimodality diagnosis. And I actually believe that the clinical exam, while important, is going to become less important and maybe even take a backseat to some of those other parameters or maybe even other biomarkers, such as CSF or blood markers that we don't even know a, a lot about yet.
3: So, yes, I, I've enjoyed reading about BASIC and I, I was going to ask you if if there was any way to cross correlate uh, some of these uh, subjects to the basic score
2: yeah, and I, I think that's that's a great question, and that is something that we're starting to look at now is what are the basic scores on those patients, and we run into again some real real world practical limitations in Sometimes not every single one of these patients get us an MRI. We try to now, and we're in a new hospital now where the MRI scanner is actually right next to the emergency room, so it's a bit safer uh, to, to get MRIs on these patients, and we've been able to get the time down. So I think, I think that we're, we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at the relationship between not only the MRIs, but also the electrophysiology, the evoked potentials. Right now, obviously, we're doing them primarily in the operating room, but we are, are piloting work on bedside motor both potentials in some patients, and we're, we're trying to expand that work as well.
3: Yeah, I enjoyed your paper, actually, looking at the impact of uh, MEPs uh, on outcome, and I would just point out that when you're in the operating room, you can stimulate uh, with much higher voltages or, or currents. Then the person would tolerate um if they were awake now, if they're complete, that might not be so much of an issue. but big advantage of the operating room is the simulation intensities
2: yeah absolutely and and that is that is why we've done it outside of the operating room on such a limited basis we've We've done this on on again maybe no more than 10 or a dozen patients, but they're all intubated and sedated for a variety of reasons. We we haven't intubated them for that purpose. They were already intubated, uh, but you're right. It does require a high amount of voltage. And even, I would argue, in a complete patient, you still have to be very, very careful <clears throat> and, and use a bite block in those patients because it it can potentially be morbid. And if nothing else, it can be painful. And so we've, we've been exploring other options such as transcranial magnetic stimulation to achieve that. However, you're right, it may not achieve the same power or voltage as, as electrical stimulation.
1: And just to follow up on that and, and um, to go along with what Dr. Dahl was saying about um, multimodality, getting as much data as possible for these patients and intraoperative information, we, we've talked about intraoperative ultrasound is another potential marker um, to actually visualize the injury and to see what kind of uh, information we can glean from that and to see if there's any prognostic information there as well from actually being in the or Um, and so that's something that we're looking into and and how to protocolize that and operationalize it uh, uh, in order to to get that information what's going on
3: yes i've been very interested in that myself and uh, we published a paper last year in an animal model uh, showing some very interesting changes uh, with ultrasound.
0: Very interesting discussion. Thank you. Dr. Patel, do you have some questions that pertain to the paper?
4: Uh, yes, I do. Um, you know, first off, uh, Dr. Roark, Dr. Dahl, this is a great paper. Uh, you know, I'm in, uh, I'm at Rutgers, um, you know, PGY6, and we have a fairly heavy trauma uh, population overall, but across the two major New Jersey highways. So, you know, I want to sort of Go back to something Dr. Dahl had mentioned um you know you had mentioned the the whole stated time of seventeen minutes, which is incredible um and you know I know it takes uh it takes a large system to accomplish something like that the logistics I can imagine are complicated. The study itself had a several year sort of time span. was this seventeen minutes um a slow process that eventually got up, or was there significant variability in this average? How did you guys get to that 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 success?
2: Well, you know, and I, I the last thing I want to do is take credit for things that, that I, I didn't do. And, and I, I think that is, we're, we benefit from being in a, a very unique geographical region in, in that our our trauma center is the only level one trauma center in San Francisco, and it covers the city of San Francisco and the northern half of the county, which is just south of us, which is San Mateo County. And... So our trauma patients are coming from within that San Francisco peninsula. Like John pointed out, there are no freeways really. Um, And so those those patients are coming from just the city of San Francisco and our EMS system has achieved a very high level of efficiency of getting the patients to us. It's very rare that a patient, with a significant traumatic injury ends up going anywhere else except for to our hospital. Like I said, there aren't any other level one trauma centers in the city. And if they're across a bridge, then they go to one of the other trauma centers, either in the East Bay or the North Bay. Um, and so I think that's part of it, that's why it's advantageous, but certainly in, in your region you're not going to have that. We, you know, at our institution, we uh, we don't get as many transfer trauma patients as a lot of other level one trauma centers do. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm sure at, at at your place at Rutgers, you do get more of those. Certainly, when I was at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, we got a lot of those patients, and um, I'm sure in Miami it's the same. And it, that's more challenging, right? Because then what? Yeah. Based on this information, what do you do? Is it better to keep a, a patient at a lower trauma designated hospital that's closer to the site of the injury, or take the time to transfer them to a center like yours or ours or Jackson to to get a different level of spinal cord injury care? And I, I think those answers are not quite clear yet. Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll think, comment uh, too. I, I
1: think was. Yeah, I was, I was really surprised yeah. by that number. I'll just briefly comment, uh, just not you know having come here for residency and uh, been here for four years. But digging into it has explained to me that a lot of it is just because the ge- geography of San Francisco, very small area, small in the size of Manhattan. Um, there's no major um, bridges or anything that anyone has to cross. And um, when they put the ambulance lights on, they know where to go. And it takes roughly you know 20 minutes to get to SFGH, which is relatively centrally located in that geographical area, and we get very few transfer patients. So uh, I think that nothing we can take credit for at all, but we were surprised uh, as well by that. And it's certainly an average, so there may be patients who take longer because it's really a recognition time, uh, but usually the patients arrive uh, fairly quickly.
3: So uh, one...
1: That's awesome.
3: So one might uh, ask the question if the uh, intensity of injury in terms of the forces that the spine has been exposed to would be less when the sort of speed at which accidents occur is lower.
2: Yeah, and that's a, and that's a great point. You know, it's a different, it's a different demographic. Of uh, patient than we uh, than we would see at other institutions where there are multiple freeways. Like for example, our our prospective multi-center spinal cord injury registry, which we call Track STI, includes a major trauma center in Fresno, which is completely the opposite. It's at the it's at the intersection of more than one freeway and a major agricultural area. So they see those kinds of injuries, the high-speed motor vehicle accidents, the farming injuries. Um, so, it's, it's completely different. The, the point that I would make, and I think the reason why our data is important, is we see a lot more of the elderly spinal cord injury patients. And I think that's important because, thankfully, the the stereotypical spinal cord injury patient, the young person, generally male in their 20s, who, who either is in a car accident or a diving accident, those, those numbers have stagnated and possibly even declined, right, as as the cars get safer and protect us all more. Um, But the the injury that at least anecdotally we're seeing more and more of is the elderly patient, the patient who's in their 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, who falls down at home in the middle of the night, getting up to go to the bathroom and trips over a rug uh, and gets either a central cord injury or even something far more severe than that. And those, as the, as the population ages, especially where we are, we, we have a very high of geriatric patients in San Francisco. We're, we're really seeing a lot of that. And I, I think that those patients present an even more significant challenge. Um, they're much more frail and they're much more susceptible to the morbidity of our treatments that we, we provide them, like I think Dr. Kesson had mentioned, blood pressure management. And, and you know, we have learned the hard way about the downside of pressing those patients because our patients are older and more frail. so I think even though the the energies and the forces of, that cause these injuries are different than might be seen at other centers, all of the all spine surgeons are going to have to deal with these kinds of injuries probably more and more as time passes by as
4: a, as a question sort of just to Um, you know, bring us the full circle. You know, I I remember uh, Dr. Burke had mentioned um, that there was possibly an ongoing larger prospective uh, registry you guys have, or he alluded to that.
2: Is that something you guys have in the works? Yeah. um, What I I was talking about earlier uh, was our our prospective multi-center study or registry called TRAC-SCI, Transforming Research Uh, and Clinical Knowledge in Spinal Cord Injury. And um, it's it's something that was inspired by TRAC-TBI, which you may have heard of, which is our much larger traumatic brain injury mm -hmm. program led by Jeff Stanley. And what we've tried to do, when I was fortunate enough to be part of a, a team that wrote an update on the cervical spinal cord injury guidelines in 2013. Probably the most striking thing to me about that process of going over all of those studies in a really critical fashion and generating guidelines was this chasm that we had. We had a handful of randomized controlled trials. I won't even call them level one, but I'll call them RCTs. And then we had a whole bunch of case series and case reports, and we didn't have a lot in between. And that's what we tend to see, I think, overall in neurosurgery now, having done three or four guidelines. And one of the things I learned is what would be really valuable in helping us answer these tough questions in spinal cord injury and probably a lot of other neurosurgical pathologies is not necessarily to have a randomized controlled trial in each and every question, like what you know, what map is ideal or what timing of surgery is ideal or so on and so forth, but to have high quality prospectively collected data that we can then go back and query the answer specific questions. It's certainly not perfect, but it's better than going back and reviewing charts and all the biases that come with that. So that's what track SCI is. And, and that's currently at uh, I think technically now we're at three sites, uh, like I said, San Francisco General and, and San Francisco. Fresno, uh, UCSF Fresno uh, Community Regional Medical Center, which is the level one trauma center there, which is about halfway between San Francisco and L.A., and then our third site that's coming online is Ohio State University in Columbus, and so that, what that's allowing us to do is collect that prospective data and also overcome the other challenge, which in a way is a good thing, is spinal cord injury is far less common than TBI. So each institution, each trauma center may only see anywhere from 20 to 50 spinal cord injuries in a year. So it's harder to do good good studies at just one place. But if we can collect data for multiple sites at once, then we, we get the power of, of the numbers behind us. And so that's, that's what we've
1: had an ongoing for now about four or five years. And I'll, just to piggyback on that, I think that the context of this is that this this is something Dr. Dahl asked me to look at as he was designing the prospective database to see what we had retrospectively and the limitations thereof that we could improve upon in the prospective database. And if anything, just to repeat what Dr. Dahl said, um, you know, Dr. Dahl and the other attendings at SFGH are not, they weren't prone, they weren't biased towards early surgery at all. And uh, we weren't really looking for that. And, you know, there's a lot of bias out there in these retrospective studies, but the fact that we were able to see that and, and I, you know, really has uh, convinced, I think, a lot of us here where we are that this is the right thing to do and really has changed practice uh, uh, as well. So um, I think we're following things up, but there's always going to be bias in these retrospective database and it might be worth it for everyone to do this kind of analysis at their own institution to see if these things hold up um, uh, you know, because uh, I think that there's some signal there of getting these people to surgery earlier.
3: So, just to comment on registries, I I, I commend you for developing a prospective registry. Uh, Back in 2005, uh, a group called the North American Clinical Trials Network also formed a registry of, uh, it's varied between 10 and 12 uh, academic hospitals, and there's now about 1,000 patients uh, in the registry. And I really agree with you that the potential for data mining and even to use things like uh latent analysis to try and find linkages between unpredicted variables uh is possible when you have a very good data set like that.
2: Well that okay. that's fantastic. I, I I know about NACTIN and uh and I believe that's been led by my my mentor, Dr. Grossman. Uh, I did not know that there were that many patients in that database. Have have there been many papers that have come out of that?
3: Yes, there's about 20, I would say.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic.
0: Wow, this was a wonderful discussion. This is Dr. Stripler again, and I wanna thank um, all the participants for this discussion. I have one question, um, Dr. Dahl. So if some of our listeners would be interested to get their institution part of drug spinal cord injury, would they reach out to you, or how? Uh, if there anybody's interested to join uh, that group, how would that work?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We would we would love to have more sites come on board. Um, we do have a uh, onboarding process where we we talk through what it involves and the infrastructure that is at each institution and and the volume of spinal cord injuries that they see. But I would be happy to talk to anybody about that. Uh, they can email me. My email address is my uh, my first and last name, dot at UCSF.edu, So it's easy to remember. And we can certainly talk more about bringing on more sites.
0: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Dahl, Dr. Burke, Dr. Guest, and Dr. Battelle, thank you so much for uh, this wonderful journal club and this great discussion Um, for our listeners. I would encourage you to click through for the CMEs, um, and thanks uh, for everybody's time. This concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Great. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.